Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Well, we have seen over the last, what is it now, three weeks, I guess, three weeks, three Sundays, that uh, as Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, and I invite you to to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 10 to 12, the verses that uh, we read just a little bit earlier. But as Jesus began his sermon in Matthew 5, it's interesting that nine times back to back, he used the phrase, blessed are. Now, I suppose there's a lot of different ways you could start a sermon. Uh, You could start it with a story. You could start it with an illustration. You could start it with a quote or kind of a humorous sort of thing or just sort of jump right into the text. But as I look at this sermon, I look at what Jesus did and how he started, I can't help but ask myself the question, why did he start this way? Why did he start repeating the phrase, blessed are, nine times? Why was this so important? Well, we need to understand that the immediate audience that was listening to Jesus' sermon that morning, uh, the group that is described at the end of Matthew chapter 4 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 before he actually got into the sermon, that the immediate audience that he was speaking to that day had really endured kind of a, a lifetime of what we might call sermon assaults, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Uh, They were known for their critical rebukes of just about everyone but themselves. They were known for their uh, negative preaching and negative teaching. They were to be the spiritual leaders of the day. They were the spiritual shepherds of the day. And yet, everything that came out of them tended to be negative and critical and sort of beat down. So the people that were listening to Jesus that day must have been shocked. It must have blown their mind that he began a sermon not with a criticism, not with a beatdown, not with something critical, but he began the sermon that day by talking to them about being blessed, being blessed, blessed are. Now, what is meant by the word blessed? You might find it kind of interesting that, uh, you know, we come to Scripture and we find some of these words and we think of some of these words, well, they're only used in the Bible, But actually, this word blessed that we find in the text of Matthew 5 was a word that was very, very commonly used on the streets and in normal conversation of Jesus' day. So when Jesus began with this word blessed, it wasn't a word that they said, huh, I wonder what he's talking about, or I don't know what that means. No, it would have immediately meant something very important to them, very understandable to them. Because in the conversation of the day, the word blessed was used to describe two conditions. Number one, it was used to describe the social status of the wealthy. So if you heard the word blessed on the street corner, you think, wow, that's kind of the social status of the wealthy. That's a great position to be in. And secondly, it was used to describe the status of the Greek and the Roman gods. The Greek culture and the Roman culture had sort of a pantheon of all kinds of different gods. And so if you heard the word blessed, you thought, well, that's a great position to be in because that's kind of like having the status of a Greek or a Roman god. So when they heard the word blessed, the first thing that would come to their mind is this is a very enviable position to be in. It's like having the status of a a wealthy person 
or living with the status of a Greek or Roman god. This is a very, very enviable position to be in. There's nothing more enviable than to be a blessed person. And as Jamie has been sharing with us the last couple of weeks, when it comes to the New Testament, and when it comes to our looking at this text today, we not only have that information, but we also understand how this word is used in the New Testament. And it is a word that is used to remind us of God's approval on a person. So when we see the word blessed in these opening verses of this sermon, we recognize that what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about a person who has received God's approval and is therefore in the most enviable position possible. That's what the word conveys. Blessed means a person that has received God's approval and is thus in the most enviable position possible. So if you and I want to put ourselves in that enviable position, if we want to put ourselves in the place where we have God's smile on our life, God's approval of our life, then I need to realize that I have nothing to offer God. Why? Because blessed are the poor in spirit. I must anguish over my spiritual poverty. Why? Because blessed are those that mourn. I must surrender all that I have to God because blessed are the meek. I must have this insatiable, insatiable hunger to be conformed to Christ. Why? Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I must act mercifully. I must have an undivided, I must have undivided loyalties. I must be a source of peace. Why? Because blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you don't mind me sort of paraphrasing this opening uh, section of the Beatitudes that we've talked about so far, I think we could paraphrase it something like this. Approved by God and most enviable are those who have come face to face with their own sin and are broken over it. Approved by God and most enviable are those who, due to being overwhelmed by grace, surrender all that they have to Christ, allowing their strengths to be harnessed for his usefulness, thus enabling them to experience life the way it was designed to be lived and to develop an intense longing to follow Christ. Having God's approval and being most enviable evidences itself in acting mercifully toward others, in living a life of undivided devotion to God, and in wanting to be a source of his peace. That's what Jesus was saying that day on the mountainside. He was talking about the blessed life. He was talking about a life that receives God's smile and God's approval. He was talking about a life that is most to be envied, envied above any other kind of life. Well, this morning, we come to the final portion of the Beatitudes. I like to call this the fun part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the persecuted. So let's just read these verses again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I want us to just stop for a moment and think about this. This final two-part beatitude takes up 59 words in our English language. 
uh, in our English translation. Now, again, depending on the translation of your Bible you have, it might be 58 words or 60 words or whatever. But in the uh, English Standard Version, the version that I'm using this morning, this final two-part beatitude takes up 59 words in our English Bible. It's interesting that the, the next longest beatitude is only 14 words. And if you take all the other beatitudes outside of this final two-part beatitude, it's only 79 words. So think about that for a moment. This final beatitude takes up almost as much words, almost as much verbiage as all the other beatitudes combined. And so when I think about that, I think, why? What is so special about this beatitude? Why does he give so many words to this beatitude? There must be something important to this final beatitude something very enviable about this final beatitude, something that is central to living a life that received God's approval in this final beatitude. There must be something very, very blessed about this final beatitude. Because of the other beatitudes, the longest one is 14 words, and this one gets 59 words. Now, when it comes to preachers, you say, well, that's just preachers. They just go on and on and on. But you know, Jesus, he just didn't go on and on and on. If he used 59 words instead of 14 words, it's because it was important. And it's because every one of those words was necessary. So why 59 words? Well, something is very, there's something very blessed about this final beatitude. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. But you know, the sad truth is, you know, as as followers of Jesus Christ, we are sometimes Uh, persecuted and reviled, not because we're following Christ. I think sometimes we're actually persecuted and reviled um, for, um, uh, for simply being a bit rude. Sometimes we're reviled and persecuted for being a bit obnoxious. Sometimes we're reviled and, 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 and persecuted because we're insensitive and thoughtless. I think sometimes followers of Christ are reviled because we get a little too judgmental and we're a little too proud. Other times we're reviled because we're a little lazy and irresponsible. Now, I'm not trying to kind of put us down, but I think we need to realize that we need to look at Christ's words and look at them carefully, and we need to look at them in their entirety. The text says, blessed are those who are persecuted as a result of righteousness' sake. It doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted for being obnoxious or rude or those kind of things. It says blessed are those that are persecuted as a result of righteousness' sake. Because the reality is, the world that we live in, and even the world of Jesus' day, can't tolerate the characteristics taught in the Beatitudes. Why is that? Well, because poverty of spirit runs contrary to the pride and the self-sufficiency of the unbelieving heart. The mourning and repentant heart that sorrows not only over its own sin, but also over the sins of society, that is not appreciated in a world that values putting on the happy face, the gentle and the meek person who has the strength not to take up personal offenses, is regarded as weak by those who don't follow Christ. Conventional wisdom has it that meekness is weakness, that dominance is what is valued. And hungering and thirsting for Christ is foreign and repugnant to a world that lusts after everything but the Lord Jesus Christ. And being a merciful person, not only feeling compassion, but acting compassionately, not only thinking about forgiveness, but actually showing and giving forgiveness. That is out of step with a culture that is grudge-bearing and callous and divisive. That's our age. 
and the pure person, the single-minded, the person with the single-minded heart, they provide a very convicting contrast to the impurity and the self-focused nature of our culture. And the, the peacemaker who won't, won't settle for a cheap peace or a counterfeit peace, but has a passionate inclination to wage war for peace, that doesn't stand well in a world that is all about us against them and them against us. So in the end, the foundational reason that such a person will be persecuted and reviled is because he or she is like Jesus Christ. Because he or she chooses to follow Christ, live for Christ, share their faith about Jesus Christ. And that's the point that Jesus makes in verse 11, does he not? He says, blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In other words, for living like Jesus, for following Jesus, for being willing to share Jesus. We need to understand that true persecution occurs when two irreconcilable worldviews, when two irreconcilable value systems collide with each other. And when that occurs and we choose to stand for Christ and we choose to share the principles of God's truth, count on it. Count on it. We will be persecuted. We will be reviled. I mean, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He said this to the church at Thessalonica. It's recorded in 1 Thessalonians 3. Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for these afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And to the church at Antioch, Paul said this, it's recorded in Acts 14, 22, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Unless we think that was just a Paul thing, listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. So the reason for the persecution is simply that we're living for Christ. It's simply that we're seeking to follow Christ. If we claim to follow Christ and yet we never experience any kind of reviling, any kind of harassment, then it's probably reasonable to ask ourselves, am I really following Christ? Because every evidence of Scripture is that if I am truly following Christ, there will be persecution. That will be there. In the book Crazy Love, Francis Chan wrote this, something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. I mean, think about that for a moment. Something's wrong when our lives are just okay and they make sense to unbelievers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor in the country of Germany during the days of Adolf Hitler and the, uh, World War II and the Third Reich, uh, one, a man who kind of single, uh, all on his own, uh, stood against Adolf Hitler and stood against what was happening uh, in, in the country of Germany and what they were doing to Jewish people and to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested for what he believed in, what he spoke about. He was eventually put to death by the Nazis. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, suffering is the badge 
of true discipleship. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Martin Luther of Reformation fame wrote this, the church is the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. And Jesus said here in Matthew chapter 5, approved by God and most enviable are those who are persecuted and reviled on account of me. On account of me. So in these three verses that we're looking at this morning, we basically find two things. First of all, we find something of the nature of persecution. And then secondly, we find something of the nature of blessing. So let's look briefly at those two things. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of persecution. You might find it interesting that the word persecuted, which is actually used three times in these three verses, bears the root idea of chase or pursue or run after. I think a good translation of the word would be harass. Somebody is just harassing you. They're running after you. They're chasing after you. They just won't leave you alone. That's the idea of the word persecuted. So it wouldn't be improper, improper to simply say that verse 10 opens this way, blessed are the harassed. And verse 11 kind of amplifies that because it talks about being reviled. It talks about people uttering kind, different kinds of evil against you. So when we see the word persecuted in these verses, let's think about the idea of being harassed, just being chased after, pursued, those kind of things. The word revile that's also used in this text also has kind of an interesting meaning. It literally means to cast out of one's teeth. Now, I know that sounds a little strange, but the idea is to throw insults out of one's mouth in another person's face. That's the idea behind that word. So even though persecution can be physical, most often it is the harassment that is mentioned in this text, the verbal harassment. Sometimes it's audible. Sometimes it's a whispered. Sometimes it's direct. Sometimes it comes in innuendo. Sometimes it's verbal abuse. Sometimes it's social ostracism. And the tragedy is not that this happens, but if you think about it, the tragedy is that it doesn't happen. Why don't we experience this? Why aren't I experiencing this? In the book, um, The Insanity of God, uh, the author Nick Ripkin uh, and his wife Ruth, they share um, stories of uh, over 600 believers that they interviewed across 60 countries uh, covering 15 to 20 years of their lives. They traveled into 60 countries where followers of Jesus Christ are, are severely harassed and persecuted and reviled for their faith. It is an amazing journey that Nick and his wife Ruth took, traveling in these countries, getting in kind of a, a kind of cloak and dagger to interview and talk to people that were followers of Christ and trying to understand what they went through. And so over the course of those interviews and those stories that are in this book, they, they discovered some very interesting things. They learned what it meant to be harassed for righteousness' sake and on account of Christ. And they, the consistent testimony of those people that they interviewed and talked to is that the persecution that they faced had little to do with ignorance. It had little to do with the intolerance of non-believers. It had little to do with religious discrimination or repressive governments or a lack of human rights. Let me just read to you just a couple of real quick paragraphs out of this that I find very interesting that I think you'll find interesting. Nick writes this, why is it that millions of global followers of Jesus who actively practice their faith 
live in environments where persecution is the norm. Why is that? Well, the first and most basic answer is that these people have given their lives to Jesus. And the second answer is that they have determined in their hearts that they will not keep Jesus to themselves. Having found faith in Christ, they have such a passion for Jesus that they must share the good news of his sacrificial love and forgiveness with their families, their friends, and their neighbors. By doing that, these believers are choosing to be persecuted. What that means is this, that for most believers, persecution is completely unavoidable. If someone simply leaves Jesus alone, doesn't seek Jesus, doesn't follow Jesus, then persecution will simply not happen. But that even but beyond that, even if someone is a follower of Jesus, persecution will likely not happen if that faith is kept private and personal. If a person is silent about their faith in Jesus, the chance of being persecuted is very small. So if our goal is reducing persecution, that task is easily achieved. First, just leave Jesus alone. And second, if you do happen to find him, just keep him to yourself. Persecution stops immediately where there is no faith and where there is no witness. The reason for persecution then is that people keep finding Jesus and then they refuse to keep him to themselves. I mean, think about it. If Peter and John would have just shut up, they never would have been put in jail and beaten. If Paul and Silas would have just kept their mouths quiet, they would have never found themselves in a Philippian jail beaten for their faith. If Stephen would have just kept his, kept his mouth quiet, he never would have been stoned to death. But the fact is the church must be persecuted or it is no church at all. The passage we're looking at teaches us that there will be a price to pay for coming to Jesus. There will be a price to pay for following Jesus. There will be a price to pay for telling others about Jesus. So I need to ask myself, I need to ask Mark, am I being harassed? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Why am I not being harassed and reviled and persecuted for my faith? Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, it reminds us that when we're persecuted for following Jesus and for sharing Jesus, it's the norm. It's the way it's going to be. But it also reminds us that we can be glad in the fact that we are keeping company with the likes of Isaiah we're keeping company with the likes of Jeremiah. We're keeping company with the likes of Elijah and John the baptizer and other prophets. But verse 12 reminds us that the ultimate source of our rejoicing and gladness, the ultimate blessing is great is your reward in heaven. And the word that's translated great in verse 12 literally means immeasurably grace. It literally means gigantically great. It literally means ginormously great. So it's literally saying ginormously great 
is your reward in heaven. Kind of goes along with what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, uh, first, in 2 Corinthians 4, where he said, for this light momentary affliction is actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then Paul wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight, Timothy. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So great, immeasurably great, abundantly great, gigantically great is our reward in heaven. So, folks, that's something of the nature of persecution. But, you know, when you get down to it, the Beatitudes, and in particular this final two-part Beatitude, this is not so much a passage about persecution. This is a blessing passage a blessing passage. This is about living a life that received God's approval. This is about living a life that is the most enviable life possible. And you might notice one other thing, that until now, all of the blessings in the Beatitudes have been somewhat impersonal. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But when you come to this final two-part Beatitude, it goes from the impersonal to the personal. And it changes to blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of blessing as it's sort of defined by harassment and persecution for righteousness sake or on account of Christ. As we mentioned earlier, blessed means that a person has received God's approval and is thus in a very enviable position, the most enviable position possible. As we just mentioned a moment ago, verse 12 tells us, rejoice and be glad when you go through this. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. So a logical question is this. How are we to rejoice and be glad in persecution? We don't typically think of those two ideas dovetailing together, do we? We think of those sort of mutually exclusive from each other. But that's not what it says here in the text. How is it that when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, we actually find ourselves in the most enviable position possible. Again, we don't usually think that way, do we? We don't think of being persecuted and being enviable as being in the same position, but that's what the text is saying. How does one rejoice when unjustly harassed, insulted, ostracized, and scorned, marginalized, and condemned for righteousness' sake or for on account of Christ? Well, when a follower of Christ is in the midst of persecution and harassment, maybe from an employer, maybe from a coworker, maybe from a classmate or, or a teacher or the, the parents of the, the children that we teach, maybe from a friend or family member, maybe from the culture and its worldview, the answer to rejoicing is never going to be found in our feelings. It will never feel good to be harassed. It will never feel good to be reviled. It will never feel good to go through this. And it also isn't left to our, our own ability to kind of logically figure it all out. And we, though we may be able to think that, okay, here's what I'm doing, and here's what's happened to me, and I kind of get it, and I can look at it logically, that's not really the answer. That's not really why, where we find our hope and our help. It's not in our logic. 
It's not in our feelings. It's not in our ability to just reason through it. What we look to and what we must trust in is God's word. Because it is the truth of God's word that has the power to calm our hearts, that has the power to allow supernatural joy and supernatural gladness to triumph even in the midst of this harassment. So let's ask this question. What can we know for certain from the word of God that will allow us to rejoice and be glad, that will allow us to recognize God's approval on our lives, that will allow us to see harassment for righteousness' sake and on account of Christ as the most enviable position possible. What can we know for certain that will allow us to see it that way? Four things. Number one, we can know for certain that we're united with Christ. We can know for certain that we're united with Christ. The world will always bitterly oppose Jesus Christ. The world will always bitterly oppose those who are united to him and live like him and share him. And it was this knowledge that actually gave joy and gladness to the very first followers of Christ to be persecuted. I mean, it was Peter and John and the other apostles who were beaten for following Christ and beaten for just sharing Jesus Christ. And they speak about it, in, or it's spoken about in Acts chapter 5, verse 40. In those verses we read, and when they had called the apostles in, they beat them, and they charged them not to do what? Not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease speaking and teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So we read a few moments ago, Jesus said in John 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So when we are confronted by that reviling and harassing, when we're confronted with that persecution for righteousness sake or on account of Christ, Jesus said, hey, you're facing that because I chose you out of this world. You are mine. That's what gives us our joy. That's what gives us our gladness. That's what gives us our hope. If we're persecuted for Christ's sake, for the honor of his name, it is because he chose us out of this world. And that proof, that knowledge is what gives us hope and comfort, knowing that we are his and we are united to him forever. Forever. We know that for certain, based upon the truth of God's word. Here's the second thing we know for certain. We know that we're actually being perfected as believers. Somehow in the, the wisdom of God, or as uh, Nick Ripkin would call it, in the insanity of God, uh, somehow in the great wisdom of God, persecution is at times the tool, the resource, the means that God uses to help us along the road to practical holiness and righteousness. Now, we might wish he'd choose a different tool. We might wish that he'd choose a different resource, a different method. But this is sometimes the method he chooses. And it is that persecution that actually helps us become a little more like Jesus. Peter knew this from his own experience of persecution. That's why in his first letter, he, he wrote this about persecution. It's recorded in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold 
that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And later he added in 1 Peter 5, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the point? The point is persecution is a factor. It's a tool. It's a resource that God uses to confirm his children, to establish his children, to strengthen his children. And it is because of this truth, this knowledge, that we can face persecution and harassment with joy and with gladness, knowing that as we go through this, we are actually becoming more and more and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing we can know. We know that we share more of the supernatural power of the Christian life. We know that we share more of the supernatural power of the Christian life. Think of it this way. When everything's going well, and uh, life is good, and money's good, and health is good, and family's good, and just everything is going well. Um, it, it's easy to be happy, right? I mean, we're no different than anybody else. Uh, everybody's like that. Everybody rejoices when circumstances are favorable. But if we're able to find joy and gladness when things are unfavorable, when we're being reviled or harassed or ostracized because of our faith, in that setting, if we're able to be joyful and find gladness, that is not natural. That is not human contrived. That is not something we can just sort of generate from our own, you know, thinking and our own heart and emotions. No, that is supernatural. That is the supernatural power of Jesus Christ made manifest in and through us. So we can know for certain that that persecution, that harassment, that reviling is actually the dark background that makes the light of Christ in the transformational power of the gospel shine its brightest. We can know that. We can take that to the spiritual bank. We can put that in our spiritual accounts and depend on that. Then here's a fourth one. We know that we have the promise of rewards in heaven. How is it that we can rejoice? How is it we can be glad when going through harassment and reviling and ostracism for our faith by our family or our friends or people at school or people at work or wherever it might be? How is it that we can do that? Because we know, based upon the truth of God's word, that we have the promise of reward in heaven. Folks, we should not think of our Christianity as something so ethereal and spiritual that we should be above thinking about our eternal rewards. We should not be above that. I mean, that wasn't true of other believers. I mean, we're told that Abraham looked for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. He looked to the future reward. He didn't have it all in this life. We're told by Moses of Moses that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? Because Hebrews eleven twenty six tells us he was looking ahead to his reward. That's how Abraham approached it. That's how Moses approached it. And it's said of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is, sat down now, is seated now at the right hand of God the Father. 
It was that joy of, of that eternal reward of being seated at the right hand of God the Father that enabled him to, to go through and rejoice and be glad in the cross and the shame that he bore. Jesus told us, rejoice and be glad, for immeasurably great is your reward in heaven. And it is in that knowledge and it is in that truth that we are blessed, knowing that we have God's approval and knowing that we are in the most enviable position possible. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. So what is Jesus really trying to accomplish here in the Beatitudes? What is he trying to accomplish by blessing the worthless and the mourners and the peacemakers and the, and the persecuted? I mean, what is Jesus driving at? I mean, can we really make ourselves meeker? Is there some concoction or formula that we can mix in a beverage and drink it and suddenly I'm meeker? Is that possible to do? I mean, should we be looking for opportunities to be harassed and persecuted? I mean, I suppose we could adjust our lifestyle and live a little more humbly or something like that. But here's another way of understanding what Jesus is doing. He's saying, okay, let me describe to you what the God-approved life looks like. Let me describe to you what the most enviable life you could ever possibly live is really like. Because the culture of first century Israel and the culture of our day and age in 21st century America, it tells us that the good life is having all the stuff we want. The good life is having the perfect family and the perfect health and the good life is retiring early, and the good life is having total security. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no. He says, no. He says, that's not the best life. It's not the God-approved life. It's not the most enviable life. Not, not at all. Jesus says that that life, the God-approved life, the enviable life comes from being poor in spirit and mourning and being meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker and being harassed for my sake. I mean, think about it this way. When the crowd sat down on the mountainside that day and they began listening to Jesus talk, um, they didn't bring pens and pencils, did they? They didn't bring uh, notebooks and journals. They didn't have their Bible app open so they could follow along with the outline. They weren't there for a women's seminar or a men's conference. They were there that day looking for what it means to experience life at its best, life in its fullness, life in its fullest. And the first words out of the mouth of Jesus to those people were these, don't worry about the message of the culture. Don't even worry about the message of the religious establishment. Here's how to have God smile on your life. Here's how to live the blessed life. Here's how to live the most enviable life imaginable. Here's how to live life at its fullest. And folks, if that's what you want, and if that's what I want, if I want the God-approved life, if I want to live a life that is the most enviable life possible, the truly blessed life, then you and I need to take to heart the teaching of Jesus in these verses that we call the Beatitudes. We need to take these things and do all that we can to live them out, flesh them out, put them into practice in our daily lives. And so let me close this morning with just a couple of kind of practical thoughts. And I'm not trying to make this too simplistic. I'm not trying to make this too cute or anything like that. 
But I just want to ask the question, how do we experience the blessed life, the approved life, the enviable life? How do we put the Beatitudes into practice on a daily basis? Three ideas, three simple ideas. Number one, focus on one Beatitude, one blessing a day. What if we were to take the rest of the month of February and on each Monday for the rest amount of February, focus on dependence versus self-sufficiency? In my quiet time with the Lord, just focus on dependence and how much I'm dependent on Him and how self-sufficiency isn't the enviable life. It's not the full life. It's not the best life. It's not the God-approved life. What about in my conversations with people and in my interaction with non-believers and fellow believers? And as I go through my day, what if I tried to make the day, the focus of my Monday, a day of thinking about and centered on dependence instead of self-sufficiency? What about if on Tuesday... I were to focus on repentance rather than superficial happiness. And I don't mean by that that we go around every Tuesday with this sort of mopey face and repentant face and, you know, I'm, a, I'm scum of the earth and that kind of thing. But just to focus on, you know, this is who I am, but this is who Jesus has made me to be because of the forgiveness and the cleansing and the grace that he has, he has shown me. But I focus on that, not just some superficial happiness, but genuine happiness based upon a broken, repentant heart and what Christ has done for me. Just focus on that in my time of prayer, in my quiet time with the Lord, in my time of interactions with others. What if on Wednesdays I focused on meekness rather than dominance, rather than thinking about taking charge and being number one, I focused on being a servant and following G- Jesus' model of being where the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. What if on Thursdays I focused on righteousness and hungry and thirsting for righteousness as the real path to satisfaction than all the other things that I've been chasing and all the other things that the world chases? And what if on Friday I focused on truly being merciful truly being gracious, truly being forgiveness rather than being harsh? What if on Saturday I focused on integrity and having a purity of heart rather than uh, double-minded and, and, and kind of putting on this kind of face while really having this kind of heart rather than being a fake? What if on Sundays I focused on peacemaking rather than bitterness, rather than divisiveness, rather than us against them? What if I just touch base with that person that we just don't rub well against each other? We just don't see eye to eye on things. You know, I heard a phrase not too long ago, and it went something like this. It's hard to hate up close. You know, it's easy to look at the people around me that are a bit distant from me and just not like them and not like things about them and not like their viewpoints, not like things about them. I get up close to them. It's hard to hate up close. What if I got up close to a few people that I just don't see eye to eye with? and really sought to make peace with them, and really sought to love them, and really get to know them, so that I maybe had some opportunity to open up about Christ to them. What if I focused on one beatitude, one blessing a day for a month? Well, that's just practical idea number one. Here's practical idea number two. Uh, Jamie has been challenging us through this series so far to rethink. It's sort of been the theme of this series, Rethink. And we need to recognize that you and I are immersed in a culture. We are, we are, um, uh, we are saturated by a culture, and, and we're bombarded by the messages of this culture through the media, through movies, through music, through television, through everything. We, we just kind of get that at us all the time. What if I was to, to watch a movie this week and then filter the, what I hear in that movie through the grid of the Beatitudes? 
because this movie is probably saying, this is the enviable life. And then I filter it through the grid of the Beatitudes, I may think differently. What about the music that I listen to? What if I was to take that song that I really enjoy listening to on the radio or on my, my, uh, my phone or whatever, and I was to take the message of that song and begin to filter it through the grid of the Beatitudes and say, what message is this sending about the enviable life? And what message is God telling me about the enviable life? What if I was to filter some of the social media stuff I, I write and I see through the grid of the Beatitudes? What if I was just to rethink that, but do that intentionally? Actually, think about that movie. Think about that song. Think about social media. Think about what I'm hearing and reading, and really take time to rethink, rethink, rethink. Because we live in a culture that wants to squeeze us into its mold. We live in a culture that wants to squeeze us into its worldview. And as we get squeezed in that worldview, Christ is telling us, hey, you're going to miss out on the best life, the fullest life, the most enviable life, the blessed life. So let's actually be intentional about rethinking, rethinking. And here's the third and final thought. When it comes to this final beatitude that we've looked at today, this beatitude on the persecution of the church, um, I, I love to read. And uh, I want to encourage you to buy this book right? Um, I didn't publish it. I didn't write it. I get no kickback from it. <laughs> um, this is an amazing book. Uh, it's got a weird title, right? The Insanity of God. I'm sure that Jamie has preached several times on different qualities of God's character, right? On the faithfulness of God and the love of God. I don't ever remember Jamie preaching on God being schizophrenic, you know, or, or uh, multiple personality. That's not the idea behind the Trinity, all right? Um, we don't really think of God as being insane, but you go through the pages of this book, and it looks like kind of a big book, right? It's over 300 pages. That's a big book. You say, I don't think I can get through a, a book that's 300 pages long, but it's a storybook. It's the stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are living out their faith in a way that is much more in line with the New Testament than anything I've ever experienced in my own life. And it is challenging, it is, it is amazing, it is stunning, and you read through it, and you keep saying, that is crazy, that is nuts. You say, God is insane. Name of the book, right? So I invite you to pick up a copy of it, and let this book help you rethink a little bit about what the blessed life is really all about, what the enviable life is really all about. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we, uh, Father, we thank you for what you shared with us in the Beatitudes. We thank you for what your son taught us in the Beatitudes. We thank you that as he looked at the crowd that day and he looked at their hearts and he looked at their lives and they were all chasing things, chasing the best life, chasing the full life, chasing the enviable life, chasing all this stuff. As he looked at them, he didn't look at them with a heart of criticism or a heart of, 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 of of just trying to beat them down. He looked at them with a heart of love, and he said, hey, I want you to know the blessed life. I want you to know the great life. I want you to know the most enviable life possible. I want you to know what it's all about and have to, how do you live the God-approved life. So, Father, might this be our heart passion. And Father, as we transition now into communion, might we realize, Lord, that, that none of the things that are talked about in the Beatitudes are possible outside of Jesus Christ. 
As Wes has been reminding us these weeks in the songs that we've sung, you know, we need to look for Jesus in these Beatitudes, how he modeled these things, how he taught these things, how he lived these things. So, Father, even this morning as we close in sharing communion together, might our attention be focused on that the blessed life is only possible through the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we praise you for that. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Thank you.